if it's good for Donald Trump, it's bad for Republican politicians. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is the highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. How are you? Great. It's so nice to be with you guys today. Well, good evening to you. Good morning to me. (laughs) It is tomorrow. It's tomorrow where I am. It's yesterday where you are. And somewhere in between, we're going to record a podcast. Also returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign. And she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, always great to see you. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ron and Susan. Great to see you again. On this week's roundup, first, the latest developments on the Mar-a-Lago search saga. Next, are America's best days behind us? We'll take a look at a recent poll showing that more than half of Americans now think that's true and how the recent uptick in polling for Democrats could shape the midterms. Then we'll discuss how Republicans have spent the last few weeks defending Trump instead of mounting any real opposition to the Democrats' policy agenda. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we're going to discuss Finnish Prime Minister Sana Marin and what parts of the private lives of political power holders we should actually care about. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is a private ad-free version of the podcast where we bring you strategy and analysis you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. For the third week, (laughs) the story of Donald Trump hoarding classified documents continues to unfold. On Monday, the New York Times reported that the National Archives retrieved over 150 documents marked classified in the first batch of materials they recovered from Trump in January, which could or could not explain why the government moved so aggressively to recover the documents from Mar-a-Lago earlier this month. In total, the government has seized more than 300 classified documents from Trump since he left office. Uh, Again, the National Archives told his lawyers that he had taken more than 700 pages of classified documents. We still don't know any of the specifics of what sensitive documents Trump stole when he left office, uh, but the Times is reporting that he had documents from the CIA, NSA, and the FBI. And they're also reporting that Trump looked through the boxes personally in late 2021 before handing anything over. So, This is now the third week we've talked about this on the Roundup. It's been our lead story, and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon because it's just so seismic of an event. So, Susan, I want to start with you, um, and we'll dig into more of the details here and who's asking for what now, but um, how did you react to the sheer volume of classified information Trump took with him after leaving office? Or is it like, you know, 20 classified documents, 20,000 classified documents, does it really matter? And, you know, do we have any sense of what those numbers even mean? 
I feel like he was like those scenes at you see at an embassy that's under attack. And instead of burning all the documents, he's running to like hide all the documents <laughs> and steal them and stash them away in like the, the limo, like to get him out of the White House as quickly as possible before anyone else can get to them. Um, it's a really, again, like most things with Trump, shocking but not surprising. Did he take yeah. it? Does he? Th- it goes to his mindset. I, I think there's a big part of what I've heard is true. He thinks of, of those documents as his. He's never had any respect for the office of the presidency or for government or the rules. He thinks they don't apply. At the same time, I, I just don't know how you can't think that he thought he could monetize them in some shape or form. Yeah. There, I mean, yes, maybe he kept the, a picture. Of something, but he's probably willing to sell it. So even his personal stuff, but that's his choice. But on these documents, he's got to figure, he, he had to have a reason for it because it's not like he ever read them before or cared about them when he was president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess volume just goes to more opportunity for, you know, important information relevant to national security being compromised by the, as I, what are I, crooks and scoundrels, we called them last week on the roundup, the, you know, the, the rotating, uh, you know, the circus of people coming in and out of Mar-a-Lago constantly. So I guess, I guess that's where volume matters. But to me, I hear, okay, he had a hundred pages. He had 10,000 pages. I don't like it. There's still very important information, sensitive information you shouldn't have had in the first place. And, um, and I guess that helps prosecutors, right. Build a case, but, also on Monday, Politico reported that the Gang of Eight has requested access to the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. Now, the Gang of Eight includes the two top leaders from each chamber, Schumer and McConnell in the Senate, Pelosi and McCarthy in the House, uh, and the top Democrat and Republican from the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. That would be Warner and Rubio in the Senate, Schiff and Turner in the House. So one staffer for one of those Gang of Eight members said that all eight of them hadn't yet signed off on that request. But that isn't necessarily routine. Gang of Eight members and their staff uh, can ask the intelligence community, do ask the intelligence community for information in ways that don't require all eight of them to sign off. So, Liz, um, (laughs) do you have any concerns about this group of lawmakers getting access to the documents? and 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 you know basically Congress stepping in here to add to the mayhem that's already unfolding in the news. Well, my thought is as follows: um, I think the average American voter is watching what is happening on TV if they're paying attention at all. I don't know how you can miss this story, right? It's week three; it's still going. It's kind of at the top of everything. But I think when it is FBI, DOJ. I, you still leave room for people to believe that it is a law enforcement event. And as soon as you bring in Congress and the gang of eight and the, you know, folks that you mentioned, the leaders of, of our Congress, it's immediately a political circus. Right. And so not to say that it wasn't in the eyes of some people at the beginning, um, seeing this totally as a political move, which, Obviously, it is not. Um, and, you know, there had to be a ton of political calculus before moving forward on such a search. But I think as we start to see the narrative around the Gang of Eight and Congress paying attention um, in, in terms of making document requests and requests for information and details and photos and, you know, what have you, 
I think we will just continue to see the text messages and the emails for fundraising on both sides of the aisle um, go kind of bonkers. And so I would say in another day and age, Congress getting involved, it would be like, this is their right and responsibility and let's see what's going on. And in this day and age, right now, the present, what we're experiencing against this kind of wild political backdrop, I think we're just going to see it even more hyper politicized than than it already is. Yeah, Susan. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to just follow up on that because I agree with everything that Liz said, but especially when it comes to Kevin McCarthy specifically. Yes. Yep. You know, I think that's even Marco Rubio. He has acted in a bipartisan fashion throughout the last time on on the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee. He's been fairly responsible in that role, from what we can tell. Kevin McCarthy owes too much to Donald Trump and has shown too often that he is willing to sell out and do whatever it takes to keep him happy. I really, really, really do not trust him specifically. There are other politicians involved, and I agree. And like this is now a political thing with a former president who is having an outsized role in our politics right now. But God, like Kevin McCarthy, I don't even think I would like give him like keys to the golf cart. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. like I just wouldn't I just wouldn't trust him with anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Susan, I mean, OK, so Gang of Eight, they, like they obviously have intelligence oversight responsibilities and powers. And it is it is you know perfectly lawful and appropriate for them to ask for, hey, what is this information that was compromised? And, you know, we want to look at it. But it's interesting. This reporting doesn't actually say who of the gang of eight has requested access. And I, and I like, is there any way to read the tea leaves here uh, in terms of whether, you know, McConnell and McCarthy and Rubio have been pretty quiet about this request. We don't know if they were on board with it or if it's the, you know, we don't know who's actually requesting and who hasn't signed off on it. Um, But it also doesn't help them to say that we're, we're, we want to see the documents, right? Because it only raises the specter of the fact that they were stolen in the first place. So I just wonder how you, how you think this changes the optics of the story. I think you can spin it any which way you want, frankly. Um, And maybe someone's not going in for the request because they are afraid of a Kevin McCarthy. And that could be Mitch McConnell, by the way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> to beat I'm, Nancy I'm, Pelosi. Yep. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm not joking. I'm being so serious. I know I'm laughing about it, but... I, it kind of depends on what's on the papers. It, it, it depends on what's on the papers. What I would... I would be curious if it can be parsed in such a way that the content of certain documents that their concerns have been compromised of current and ongoing operations, intelligent operations, because there they do have to have a certain amount of information. If we're doing something in a part of the world um, and these documents have been compromised, we need to know that. And maybe we collectively don't. As a matter of fact, the public doesn't need to know it, nor should we, if there's top secret operations going on. But when they're making decisions out of the Gang of Eight and, and, and funding and other things, I could see why that is important. I don't know if they need to know what specific documents mm-hmm. versus the content. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's parsing it, I know, an awful lot, yeah. but I'm trying to, to try and take away some of the politics of here of this. And let's not forget, like when Donald Trump took those documents, he thinks he just took a bunch of paper and shoved it in a box. No, he put men and women's lives on the line 
because you compromise sources and methods. That's what this is about. This isn't just what it says on the paper. It's about compromising people's lives on the ground. And the fact that he has no regard to that is very frightening, where I do believe at least seven of the eight members of the Gang of Eight do care about the people on the ground. Yeah. yeah, I'll give I, I'll give that benefit to everybody. Almost we can, everybody. Yeah, certainly. I deserve. I, I totally think, think that's yeah. right. I do. I, I Liz, I think what you said earlier is, is exactly right. Which is the you know, the DOJ's biggest advantage so far has been their you know at least perception of impartiality, right? At least that like that has that has traditionally been the case. That is the way they are supposed to operate. And now in the recent weeks, we've seen you know we've seen this ridiculous politicization of uh, of law enforcement, particularly from the right. Um, but I just worry that now it's going to get muddled with Congress getting involved if the Gang of Eight does decide to do, you know, if they decide to be vocal about whatever they find or don't find, or if they don't get this right, it just it it muddies the water a little bit. That's what I'm afraid of. Um, also, this week, Trump's attorneys asked a federal judge to appoint what's called a special master to review the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago and ensure his private documents uh, are returned to him. A special master is like a, a, a highly regarded expert, usually a former judge who you bring in in very, very sensitive uh, cases where it's difficult to, um, it's difficult to establish uh, impartiality, uh, more challenging to establish impartiality. We do this in redistricting, actually, because it's an inherently partisan process in the litigation. You always, usually the litigation ends up with a special master drawing a compromised set of maps. Uh, so so that, that's what they're asking for. Um, and CNN is reporting that DOJ has already signaled that it's using an internal filter team to review the items seized and separate material that could be privileged. Trump's also asking a judge to prevent the DOJ from continuing to review the documents until a special master is appointed and has reviewed the documents. Trump is asking the government to stop reviewing the government's documents until a special master is, is appointed. <laughs> the documents he had no business taking. Uh, his legal filing. <laughs> They're not his. No. Not even close. No. Not no, even close. No. Those things I stole from you, stop looking at them. <laughs> Trump's legal filing has sent some lawyers on Twitter a flutter. Former U.S. attorney and NBC, MSNBC legal analyst Barb McQuaid described the filing as a long ranting tweet dressed up as a legal filing, which our which our friend oh George Conway retweeted. Uh, Nixon's former White House counsel, John Dean, pointed out that Trump's filing cited a page in the U.S. v. Nixon Supreme Court case that doesn't actually exist. They cited page 782, but that case ends at 716. So <laughs> our, our friend, our friend Oren Kerr, um, Professor Oren Kerr pointed out that while lawyers are giggling at Trump's motion and how poorly it was done, the media has actually mostly given it respectful coverage. They're just reporting the allegation and the request. So Susan, here's a, here's an interesting uh, question, right? We've had, we've had a very uh, luxurious reprieve from Donald Trump dominated headlines in the media every single minute of every single day, but it's kind of back. Uh, And if we're heading back into the media circus, where everything revolves around Donald Trump, how should we expect them to cover his, you know, the increasingly outlandish claims? I've seen more and more of his tweets from truth, so whatever you call them, truths from truth social, like 
I don't know how they're ending up in my feed, but people are like screenshotting them. It's kind of like, okay, he's kind of crawling his way back into the day-to-day news zeitgeist. And, uh, and I wonder if you think that's here to stay. Uh, most likely, because as, as horrifying as it is to have him back the way he is, these are serious charges. Let's not forget, we're talking about he stole government documents. He didn't just take it with him. He wasn't allowed to. He consciously made an effort. And what's more interesting is that those documents that they've been reviewing since January, when they got the first tranche. That's right. And again, in June, they got a second tranche. And that's when they were signed off saying, this is all we have. This is all we have, folks. That's it. The lawyer said, that's it. And then hmm, yeah, behind that closet, there's like a little like, you know, lock on it. And you can probably take off with like the bottom of my shoe. And oh, look, there's 30 more boxes. And, and there it is. But these again, these are these are really important documents that do need to be reviewed. We do need to know what's happening with our in within the intelligence community. And is I think Trump's going to regret having been this vocal and mm. let's not forget let's look at the quality of lawyers he's had <laughs> just just saying if you just want to look at who he's had hired for the last <laughs> so bad. year so or so bad. it's really pretty bad he's not release the kraken <laughs> sorry it's never gonna get old it's never gonna get old but, but uh, it's, it, he's, yeah. he i think he's trying he's desperate and i hate to say this plus he's had a few wins politically with some of the primaries he's gotten involved in, of course, he'll blame them for losing and that they ran bad campaigns, but they were great when I supported them. But because a lot of those Trump candidates will lose their general elections. Yeah. But I don't see how we can't not focus on the importance of what's happening. Yeah. And I think actually it may move beyond Donald Trump in some ways because we're going to learn more and more about these documents and that will be the story. And it will now be the story of what's this president doing to protect our folks on the ground, our intelligence, what's been compromised. I think that's going to be more of what we hear. And maybe that's why some Republicans are a little careful about how far they're going out on a limb with Donald Trump on this one. Because they know that (laughs) they may be getting involved with, you know, basically someone who's committed treason. And we we saw that right after the news broke, and they were all quick to jump on the bandwagon of attacking the FBI and attacking the DOJ. And then there was some internal, you know, hand slapping after that. Hey, not so fast, guys. We probably don't want to be out in front of this. Um, so here's here's one question that came up a couple of weeks ago, and I want to pose it to uh, you, Susan, in particular. Liz, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but um, it comes from our our politicology plus listeners, we got a handful of these questions, which is, you know, basically with all of this, what should Democrats messaging be? What should they be saying? And my immediate reaction to that was nothing. Just shut up and defer to the DOJ, defer to the FBI. You don't want to be trying to spin this stuff. It's already politically, it's already too good for you. Just, just sit back and watch, sit back and watch. Don't say anything, especially if you're a candidate on the trail, but I wonder if you disagree and, um, and, uh, you know, if there's anything useful that they could say about this, but m- my sense is don't say anything unless you're asked. And if you're asked, defer to the FBI, defer to the DOJ. Zip yeah. it's the advice. Just zip it. There is one thing that you just made me think about, though, is 
I hope they're very careful around the January 6th hearings that are going to come back in a few mm-hmm. weeks mm-hmm. and how they try to not make this part of the conversation because that will be a mistake because then it'll be like a double whammy and Democrats really do need to stay away from this. Now, it's sucking all the oxygen out of the room. So I understand like, you know, Biden's, you know, the, the, the things that he's been passing, which left and right, he's been having pretty good days, weeks, but I think you, you can't afford to, to, to play in this sandbox, if you will. Yeah. Stay focused on the issues that your voters care about, the ones you're trying to win. And yeah, that's, yeah, I agree. Liz. Um, I know that when the three of us have been on this year podcast together, we've talked about our not so love for uh, Senator Chuck Schumer in, in the past. Um, so I hate to invoke his name, but I will just never forget. And, you know, Susan, as the comms person, I'm, I'm curious actually for your reaction to this. But the night that um, the I think it was the night of the raid. It was either that night or the following night. Uh, excuse um, me, Rachel the, the search had, and seizure, the lawful and appropriate search and seizure. Pardon, <laughs> pardon, but of course, um, of the uh, twice impeached, disgraced former <laughs> ex-president. I want to make sure I get that correct. Um, but it was that night that Rachel Maddow had um, Chuck Schumer on and it was to talk about, you know, what was happening in D.C. It was not talking about what was happening down in Palm Beach. But of course, Rachel said, you know, I have to ask you, what are what are your comments? And the way that he basically Heisman armed her um, when when she was trying to bring it up, like, I have nothing to say. We will not talk about this. I don't agree with that strategy even a little bit. I think as a trained and savvy senator, which for all intents and purposes, for how long he has been in his job. He should at least moderately try and fit that bill. If you're not going to take the question and answer the question that you want to answer, he didn't even take the opportunity, you know, when she said, what do you think about what's going on in Mar-a-Lago? Or can you react to the Kevin McCarthy tweet about, you know, how crazy this is and we will seek justice and, you know, all of the absolutely bonkers things that McCarthy was saying, you know, right at the beginning, not to be confused with all of the absolutely bonkers things he continues to say. But I watched Schumer just basically say, no, we will not discuss. And next topic. It wasn't even a savvy, like, like promotion of law enforcement. The DOJ is impartial. We, not that he was going to get up there and say, we trust our DOJ, but there was something he could have said to at least um, kind of promote the validity and the authenticity um, and the impartiality of what was happening. And I just watched him kind of, you know, stiff arm her and say, what I actually came here to talk about was this. And it was a pivot that I feel like an advisor or somebody should have just said, you're going to be asked about this. Here's how you're going to answer that question. And there was just none of that. So I couldn't agree more with the both of you that the response is to stay quiet on this issue and let it play out because it should play out. It will play out, I believe, where justice will certainly be served. However, every candidate, every politician should be prepared with a savvy, well-equipped, thoughtful response and not just a we're not talking about that. Let's move on to the next thing. Um, but Susan, I'm actually really curious for your thoughts on well, Liz, that. As usual, you're spot on. Um, and when it came to to Schumer, you're, 
you're absolutely right. He should have been a statesman for his time and experience in office. There's a way to to praise law enforcement. There's a way to praise our system. When we talk about democracy being at risk, this is a perfect time to talk about the incredible uh, system of justice we have and how it is being treated separately and that we have to take our time and be patient and let this work out. And the, the, the Department of Justice is an independent thing that we should all treasure. If you want to take a little jab that under the previous four years, they thought they could, you know, approach upon. But no, not this administration. If you wanted to, you know, have a little bit there. And now if you're on the, on the campaign trail, I think you have to say, well, you know what? I'm not the party that wants to defund the FBI. <laughs> That's where I so would just, if you need to have a little bit of political fun, if you will, with yeah. it, or yeah. at least you yeah. know, you're on the trail and you just can't say, well, I'm not prepared to talk about it because it's being done by the Department yeah. of Justice. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. can you can praise the Department of Justice and you could take a shot at the nut jobs who think that defunding the FBI is a good idea and invoking violence. And that's a perfect time to also make that show the extremism. Because that's what I think this election overall is going to be about. It's Absolutely. Extremism of of violence against IRS agents, of 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 take not just taking away a woman's right to choose what happens to her body, but saying not even in the life of the mother, rape or incest. What kind of nut job thinks like that? So I think you can make those arguments and, and have them thread together without necessarily getting so deep into the issue. Over the weekend, NBC News revealed a new poll showing that 74% of the American population thinks this country is headed off on the wrong track. 74%. That is uh, well above the 56% it was sitting at in April of 2021. The right direction was at 21%, up from 16% in May, but still well below 36% in April 2021. They found Biden's approval rating at 44% up from 41% in March and holding around where it was last October. Uh, approval on the economy has risen uh, to 40%, up from 33% in May. Uh, Biden's underwater by eight points, which makes him sort of more favorable than both major party uh, as a whole, uh, R minus 15, D minus 17. And pretty or, people are pretty evenly divided on who they want to control Congress, which is 47% say Republicans, 45% say Democrats. And at this point, uh, in the last midterm cycle, which was 2018, it was at 42% R's, 50% D's. 76% of respondents said their interest in the midterms was at an eight or higher compared to 66 at the beginning of the year. So, Susan, I'm hoping you can help us put this in perspective, how this poll stacks up with other data that's coming out, because there's some stuff, you know, that it's kind of topsy turvy that uh, that the, you know, the the unfavorable numbers are so high, but the generic sort of who do you want to control Congress is pretty much dead even. What do you make of this? Well, we've seen this in, in numbers in many polls. I actually don't think I've seen a poll where we haven't seen the gap between the, the generic ballots start to close to be about 50-50. Biden's numbers have risen from the low 30s into the low 40s. I actually don't think, except for maybe when you take the oath of office, that you ever get, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican anymore, if you break 50%. I think it is just 
we're so divided now as a country, which is what you see in the generic ballot test, that you can't go much lower and you can't go much higher than, you know, the 40s. You're forever going to be trapped there. Those days of seeing 60, 70 percent favorable ratings. I just don't I don't see it. Even if we went to war, I just don't see it. Mm -hmm. Um, You normally get behind like a a wartime president, but. Negative partisanship is too high. Yeah, the negative, and which is why I think when you even see like how people feel about the best days ahead or, you know, are be, or the best days are behind us, I th- this has a lot to do with Donald Trump. And I think yeah. what scares people has a lot to do with Donald Trump. I think people are afraid that he's ruined our system. I think people think we are, it, we're broken. Mm-hmm. And when you start thinking about how neither side is really happy, even with their own parties, that's why you see that 74%. Because even the people who say, yes, I'm going to vote Republican or I'm going to vote Democrat, ask them how they feel about their party. And I guarantee yeah. you're not going to get above 25% yeah. feel really good about their party. You don't get, you don't get warm fuzzies for sure. There's no, no. Yeah. There is nowhere to <laughs> no. turn and say, yeah. oh, this is a spot that you can like try and get into and, and come yeah. out of. It doesn't exist right now. You can't, yeah. you, you can't find good. You yeah. find less bad. You find less bad. Mm. And even, even, and we should, we should note, like even in a really good moment, which the, you, you mentioned earlier, Susan, this last several weeks have been very good for Biden and the Democrat, the Democratic Party in general. Right? They've had some really big wins over the last few weeks. They got the CHIPS Act. They got the Inflation Reduction Act done. <laughs> the Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't actually reduce inflation. But anyway, it has good things in it that we should be doing. Just, you know, <laughs> and it sounds good. Uh, the news coming out of the January 6th committee, uh, Biden bagging the world's most wanted terrorist, right? He's had a, a lot of big wins stack up in multiple domains that have all accrued to the, you know, to the favorability of the Democratic Party. Um, but as you said, there's still no, there's still not a good place to be. That's just as good as it. it I mean, this is as good as an environment as it can get. There's yeah, one right? good thing. I can point to one good thing that's happened, um, okay. at least to the Democrats, which yeah. I was surprised to see the last week or two. They haven't been killing each other. Like you hmm. haven't seen vocal opposition to the things they've passed. <laughs> The yeah. things that they vote on. That well, they say, no, yeah. that's horrible, but I had to vote for it. You know, uh-huh. At least they that's seem right. to not be vocalizing their disappointment as much. That's a great which point. Is probably also why you've seen the generic ballot kind of closing as well. That's a great point. Yeah, that, yeah like a little, a little discipline, which is pretty yeah. rare. The drumbeat of these successes does accrue, and we're going to get to this in the next segment, but it does accrue to uh, their advantage when there isn't any serious. Uh, substantive messaging opposition coming from your opponents. Um, but here's, so one of the things that jumped out at me was this number in the, in this polling, nearly 60% of respondents said they're worried America's best years may already be behind us. That is up from 53% last fall, 41% in 2019. It's getting higher. It's trending higher. 60% is a significant majority of Americans. And that's a, that's not a good place to be. And if you think about it outside of the uh, implications for um, the midterm elections or, uh, or, or sort of you know, the horse race, right? If you just think about that as a cultural number, 60% of Americans are worried that our best years are behind us. That's not an optimistic nation, right? Um, we've talked a lot about the fight for democracy. Um, 
And I wonder what you think the prospects for, you know, American democracy, when so many people think that, you know, good was back then, not up ahead, not coming up. Um, how, how are you thinking about that, Liz? Okay. So there are two things that jump out to me, one political and one not really, but I guess everything is sincerely more tied than ever before. The first thing I want to say is I believe that in, let's call it yesteryear, being involved in politics, you saw it as a civics opportunity. And Ron, I know we've talked about this quite a bit is, you know, that lack of civics education and so much about what are we teaching young people and all of that. But that conversation aside, when people now get a phone call or a canvasser at their door or a text message to give $3, it's how do I get rid of this fast enough? Why is it following me everywhere I go? Why is it seeping into my daily life, in my home, in my work life, in ways that I don't want? I think people, not to say everyone has always, always loved being involved in politics always and forever, but it's now, I think, seen as a nuisance and a problem for people who are like, I don't, I don't want to go to that fundraising event. I don't want to go to the rally. I don't want to sign up for a canvassing shift and go door knocking. I don't want to do that because I have so much on my plate and that's like a different world. It's not, I think, seen as tied together as I believe that it once was. Like going to a political rally or protest or signing up to volunteer on a campaign, I think that used to be seen as like an honor and privilege. And now it's how do we get people to even kind of sack up to be involved? The second thing that I was really thinking about this, and and I was going through this, um, you know, during COVID and trying to find a place to live and all of that. I think that when millennials or younger or lots of different generations, but I think in particular millennials who I think at one point could have really been counted on to get out the vote and be involved and make a difference, run for office, et cetera. I think they're now saying when my parents were my age, having a house and three kids and this job and this life that was possible and it is no longer possible for me. So looking at the housing market, looking at workforce crises, uh, you know, healthcare issues. I could go on and on. And I think that when younger people are looking at their parents and their grandparents' lives saying, I can't even see a kind of comparison when they were my age. I think that is where that mentality of our best days are behind us because you hear about this idyllic lifestyle, not to say that there weren't plenty of political issues and wars and and so many other things to deal with and that were going on. But the idea of the American dream, right, that you could work hard, put your head down, go to school, get the job, whatever it is, and have the life you want, it's not so possible right now, I think, for young people. And so I know, you know, looking at the polls and what ages are being polled and, and all of that, you know, we could talk more about that another time. But I think when you really are looking at this polling, I think it is younger generations are saying America is not what it used to be. And I think a lot of people would just agree with that on a surface level and say, yeah, I, I agree with that and, and move on. But Liz, so I'd just like to add yeah. one, one thing to what Liz Please. said, yeah. because it's it's definitely, I agree, you see it in the younger generation looking back and saying like, what was that? I, I'm not having that. Yeah. But you add to it, the reason why I think the numbers are going so high is also because you see parents saying, 
I no longer have the hope that my child will do better than me. Mm. That was always the thing that went from generation to generation. Sometimes you see it, for example, in, in education. Oh, at least my, you know, a a grandmother may look at at, at the mother and say, oh, she finished high school, high school. uh, You know, that mother may look at her child and say, oh my God, my college student, my daughter's going to college. Like you no longer see a trend of improvement. Like yeah, building absolutely. upon generations. So I think, yes, you have all those people who are actively going, oh my God, we're totally screwed. We don't have this life. But at the same time, you have almost like a broken heart from, from a generation that looks down and says, oh my God, they'll never, you know, I don't hope, I don't think they're going to be able to yeah. have the life I was able to give them. Absolutely. Yeah. The first question I asked our producer when, uh, when, when I saw this poll was, do we have generational splits on this? Because on that 60% number, because I'd love to see how much of this is young people versus, you know, uh, millennials, Gen X, boomers. Um, and I agree. I mean, my, my assumption is the same as, same as, same as you guys. It's got to be, you know, this has got to be driven by a, a really uh, profound pessimism among younger generations that, you know, about, about their future. And understandably so. Um, Susan, if you were thinking about communication strategy for a candidate, in with this number as a backdrop, how how does this general sentiment around? I suppose it it depends on the generational split, right? It depends on you know where your target voters are, but how would that general sentiment around the best days being behind us factor into your communication strategy? Well, you know what Republicans are going to do is that they're going to say you know make America great again and just mm. go off and make it an us versus them. If you're a responsible politician and you believe in governance, you offer, you, you, you don't talk about it, frankly, and you talk about the future. It's all you offer about hope and that's, message. That's, you offer, and it doesn't have to be a huge hope message. It just has to say like, we recognize this. And, and it's funny, if you go back to the early 2000s, it's what Bush did on home ownership. Mm. I mean, it ended up that's leading right. to the, that's right. yeah. the fiscal crisis, but yeah. Yeah. home well, there was, was a lot, such yeah. a big, there was a yeah. lot of other things. No, I'm not blaming yeah. him on, on the fiscal crisis on that messaging, but yeah. um, the point being you, you offer things that people will be able to, to get a higher education, yeah. uh, how, the, how the, you're going to fight for affordable, livable housing. But um, you're going to care for the environment. That, yeah. Exactly. That you're going yeah. to be. A stu- That's a great point. That is like probably one of the best points that you can make looking into the future is on climate. But again, being resp- but not also being like pie in the sky, you know, but but being responsible and looking towards a future and having solutions about how you think you could do yeah. it, that people can be like, oh, that's real, because you can say, look at the chip bill that we passed. Mm-hmm. That is helping. Look at the Inflation Reduction Act for not the things that it says it is, but, but not for inflation reduction. It, <laughs> that does help. That one of the most significant commitments to, to to our climate ever. So point to those things because they can get done. I, yeah. I, I would move there. I think people always prefer to be hopeful, and mm. frankly, they're tired of being us versus them. They don't even. Want, and I can't tell you the amount yeah. of people who don't even want to turn their TV on anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of Biden's rising polling numbers, uh, CNN is reporting this week that uh, vulnerable Republicans have sought to distance themselves 
from Trump heading into the midterms. I think we have one of them caught on tape. Let's roll that. So I can't believe people still make such a big deal out know, of it. Do you know each other? No. no. Okay, you, she says you know her. Okay, I know she, you know what? I'm very forgetful. Okay. Apparently, <laughs> apparently. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That was, I think that was Mariah Carey. But anyway, um, one Republican lawmaker told CNN, I don't say his name ever. I just avoid saying his name generally. <laughs> sorry, it's too delicious. It's too good. We released an episode with Liz Smith uh, this week and had a, a conversation about, uh, we had it on, on the Politicology Plus feed about Democrats and competitive seats needing space to run more tailored races. Uh, so I just wonder what you guys make to close this segment out. What do you make of some of the, you know, the push for some Republicans to keep him at arm's length now? It's too late. Like right. he owns the party. I mean, you can try all you want, but like it ain't going to work because he had, he has bought the party because if you are a principled Republican, you never won your primary. Let's put it that way. Yep. You're out on the street. So it's so it, it for <laughs> he's yeah. gone. Yeah. I would say one thing. I really hope that Biden kind of learned something from Nancy Pelosi as far as like having a political backbone, because Nancy Pelosi is like, if you have to run against me, I get it. Go in your district and say I'm like evil. I'm OK with that if you're going to win. And so the Biden folks have to stop being so super sensitive mm-hmm. to people who especially in certain districts that are winnable for Democrats. Mm -hmm. They can hold on to it or even Tim Ryan picking up that Senate seat. That would be huge. They have to not be so sensitive that they're not fully embracing the president who has frankly bad poll numbers and everything that he's done. Yeah, totally. All right. This week, Politico published a report about the lack of a grassroots Republican opposition to the Inflation Reduction Act. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. So instead of Republicans opposing the legislation, they flocked to Mar-a-Lago, right, to protest the FBI's search. Uh, In 2010, Republicans were able to make massive gains in Congress, as everyone remembers, on the back of opposition to Obamacare. But Republicans haven't had the same response to the Inflation Reduction Act uh, Cesar Ibarra, the vice president of policy at the conservative organization FreedomWorks, noted that uh, the lack of in-depth grassroots pushback, uh, like there was on Obamacare, said that Republicans got rolled on the Inflation Reduction Act. Our friend Matt Bennett at Third Way told Politico that they haven't seen the same type of opposition that there was after Obamacare passed, and that it's quote hard to object to a bill that invests a lot of money in clean energy he's right there's a there's it's very difficult to be arguing against the stuff that's in this bill except for the name right so some republicans have argued that the inflation reduction act in uh increase in funding for the irs is going to be a motivating issue for republicans the ballot box this fall i don't know uh, Brian Riddell, um, an economist at the conservative-leaning Manhattan Institute, said the Republican Party's recent apathy on economic policy is uh, partially a focus on culture and troll wars, um, partly uh, a post-Trump identity crisis, and a lot of Democrats simply wanting to avoid the economic policy prescriptions that most drive conservative rebellion. So, Susan, I, you know, I wonder. We've we've talked about this before privately. One of the things that I um, that has bothered me about the era that we're in, where the Republican Party equals MAGA equals Trumpism equals everything toxic and destructive to our democracy, has left this huge gaping void um, of 
of serious conservative argumentation on policy. And, and I miss hearing that. Uh, and I wonder what your reaction has been to the lack of a response from Republicans, you know, on policy positions generally, or, you know, of the Inflation Reduction Act specifically. Uh, but this seems to be a symptom of, you know, Trump sort of sucking the oxygen out of everything. Well, Herschel Walker really, you know, I think he was spot on. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> summed it up when he basically had a really clear response to, to, to the legislation, which was, I think we have plenty of trees. That's what Republicans are offering. Um, you know, I, I miss obviously a, a dialogue about policy, but you right now, Trump still is able to get the us versus them is Trump versus the Democrats, mm -hmm. all of them. Mm -hmm. So there's nowhere for people to go because Trump's still out there making noise. How can people get behind being against anything when they have to be with Donald? Yeah. I mean, and, yeah, and Republicans just, would be rise to remember if it's good for Donald Trump, it's bad for Republican politicians. That's exactly it. I mean, there, obviously, there's an opportunity, you know, for Democrats to use that situation to their advantage. Arguably, they are. Liz, how do you feel about that? Do you have any concerns about the lack of a real opposition on the policy front? Um, yeah. I loved what Susan just said. Like, I miss a real policy discussion. I mean, where are we seeing that? I don't think probably anywhere, right? And it's... it's well, actually... Go ahead. I think where we're seeing it is within the Democratic Party. Yes. Within the different factions of the Democratic Party, that's where we're seeing most of the serious discussion about what policy should be. But it's all on the left side of that's the right. aisle, which, you know, which also... Is not great for them because it brings a lot of scrutiny to the internal divisions of the Democratic Party. I was hoping right? that was going to be your very next sentence. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. But there's nothing on the other side to sort of uh, sort of bring a completely a conservative perspective to those policy discussions, and that's you know you have to go seek those niche yep. um, media outlets out, and it's well. Yeah. The the question that I was actually going to ask the two of you is. Do we know the last time, if ever, that in a midterms, both both parties had to run away from the leaders of their sides? Like Democrats are not going to be talking about Biden in a lot of places. Republicans are not going to be talking about Trump in a lot of places. And I don't know the last time we saw that where it's really like, you know, all politics are local. And I feel like this midterms is going to be the test if that is still the case. So you are running, what is your district? Who are you as a candidate? Who are your constituents as, you know, a subset of people? And can you keep your election just about that and not have to ask questions about, you know, combating Donald Trump or supporting Joe Biden or, or whatever that is really at the, that higher level? Can these midterm elections really bring it back to local. And I, I'm I'm not sure about that. Susan, I see they I'm so curious for your thoughts. History wise, I mean yeah. the yeah. party of that is in power in the White House, that party, if they are in power in Congress in either the House or the Senate, they are always walking away from or trying yeah. to yeah. separate what they've done because that's the nature. That's not a D or an R thing. Yeah. Now we have never ever had yeah. a president a former president be involved 
politically the way Donald Trump has. Yeah. We've never seen a president get involved in primaries. Let's just he's dominating the news cycle in part. OK, Mar-a-Lago putting aside because that's only three weeks, but he was dominating it before. Yeah, because he's involved in all the primaries. So we've never seen that environment environment from a sitting president. I mean, a yeah. former president right after he's left office. So it, that's, I think, one of the huge things that is is throwing everything sideways and backwards. Yep. And which why, frankly, we won't see such a huge wave of change in the yep. House or the Senate. Mm. I believe this House, the Senate will stay and maybe pick up one or two seats uh, for the Democrats. And I think the Republicans are going to be lucky if they pick up 15 seats. I, mm. There's no blue wave. Mm. It's a blue. It's a, I mean, no red wave. It's a yeah. ripple at best, like yep. kind of throwing a stone in the water and seeing a couple go over. But <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's look at what you are watching under the radar. Susan, what do you got for us? All right. It's it's not quite under the radar, but it's going to become very popular soon. And that is the New Hampshire Republican primary. OK, so okay. Maggie Hasen, the Hassan, the, the current uh, Senate uh, senator, Democrat from the state was a prime target for Republicans, prime target. Now you have this crazy wackadoo, not endorsed by Trump yet candidate who actually believes the current governor, Chris Sununu, a Republican, is, I want to make sure I get this right, is a Chinese communist sympathizer. Oh, my God. That's how he's... Now, let me highlight that this Republican governor is really popular and did not want to seek a Senate seat because he didn't want to have to deal with crazy people like this in a primary. Yeah. The more sane Republican who had a chance is Chuck Morris, but... He's now trailing in the polls. But if 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 the crazy Trumpist and I just I've decided not to promote certain people's names because <laughs> yeah. um, if if this person wins, I think that I think this seals it up. Like, I think Mitch McConnell may just like say bye, hang, you know, hang it up like he could be totally done because if she holds if they hold New Hampshire, which should definitely in this environment flip. To Republican, yeah, it's it's game over. Yeah, so That's I'm watching that watch. primary because it's going to be it's going to after all of what we've seen, especially in New York. That's going to be the next focus. Is September thirteenth? September thirteenth. So okay. next week it's going to come yeah. into a boil. It's just going to bubble we'll up. And it's going to be like, oh my god, <laughs> this guy's a lunatic. <laughs> we don't have any of those yeah, in politics right. these days. Liz, what are you watching? Yeah, new, new lunatic. <laughs> Um, I don't know that this would qualify because it is certainly not under the radar even a little bit, but we didn't discuss today and I know it will get some more oxygen um, by the time this drops, but um, Biden canceling federal student oh, loan debt today for, for most borrowers. And I am excited to see how this unfolds to see, you know, back to your question earlier in the episode when we were talking about Mar-a-Lago and what should Democrats be saying? They should be silent on Mar-a-Lago and they should be all about this because because this is a tangible, like, I think the average voter, the layperson, you might not know everything that is happening in every bill 
on the hill at all times. But I think this is going to get a ton of oxygen. I think this is something that people were saying, if Biden can do this before the midterms, this is something that will that will have some traction. This will stick to a lot of voters. Um, it makes a tangible, direct, almost immediate difference. It's something that he and others really can campaign on. And so I'm very interested to see how this continues to unfold from a messaging and um, kind of election perspective. I'm I'm channeling our good friend, Lene Erickson on this point, because she brought it up last week. I think it was last week, might've been the week before, uh, who is very concerned about how this is going to play out because it's, it's, it's a deeply regressive policy when it comes to education policy. We got some, we got some uh, loud opposition to that in the inbox from listeners who are like, no, this is great. And I, you know, student debt cancellation is a good thing. However, here's a statement from, uh, Tim Ryan, who is running for Ohio Senate. He put out a statement critical of this because the politics of it are so difficult for him in the, in the race. He goes, as someone who's paying off my own family's student loans, I know the costs of higher education are too high. And while there's no doubt that a college education should be about opening opportunities, waiving debt for those already on a trajectory to financial security sends the wrong message to the millions of Ohioans without a degree working just as hard to make ends meet. Instead of forgiving student loans for six-figure earners, we should be working to level the playing field for all Americans, including an across-the-board tax cut for the working and middle-class families, medical debt cancellation, targeted forgiveness for essential workers, and more opportunities for student borrowers to refinance their loans, and investing in apprenticeships, universal community college, workforce development training. Basically, not just college grads, everybody has has a shot at success. So I'm very interested in how this... That was Tim Ryan in Ohio. But was it a press release? Yeah, or? statement. I mean, give the press secretary and that comms director a raise yeah, is like seriously. what I want to say. Like really well getting done. out ahead of it. It's so well done. Totally. And whether or not it was because he truly believes it, which I'm actually sure that he does, or it was the right thing to do politically, that is a profoundly good statement to go out. And I'm like, that press secretary or whoever wrote that, whomever wrote it, um, give that so person think, a raise. This is totally a really and good no one, thing to and watch. no Democrat should go after him for saying that. Like, that right, would be really good. Right, exactly. 100%. Please, can totally. please, like, no Democrat, at least until after the election, after the right. election, say whatever you want, but just right. hold off. Yeah, exactly. Like, bring it back local. Like, let him make this local. It's about Ohio. Ohio, Then, yeah, yeah. he's getting there. All right, gang. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about why everyone is freaking out about the prime minister of Finland, but more importantly, what we can learn from this example. I'm really interested in this discussion Mm -hmm. with you, too, because it gets some really sort of big picture questions about politics. Where can everybody find you on the Internet, Liz? I'm on Twitter at underscore Liz Gilbert. And Susan? I'm on Twitter at DelPercyOS. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.